The following is a conversation with Don Song, a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley with research interests in computer security, most recently with a focus on the intersection between security and machine learning. This conversation was recorded before the outbreak of the pandemic. For everyone feeling the medical, psychological, and financial burden of this crisis, I'm sending love your way. Stay strong. We're in this together. We'll beat this thing. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and never any ads in the middle that can break the flow of the conversation. I hope that works for you. It doesn't hurt the listening experience. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code LEXPODCAST. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. Since Cash App does fractional share trading, let me mention that the order execution algorithm that works behind the scenes to create the abstraction of fractional orders is an algorithmic marvel. So big props to the Cash App engineers for solving a hard problem that in the end provides an easy interface that takes a step up to the next layer of abstraction over the stock market, making trading more accessible for new investors and diversification much easier. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use the code LEXPODCAST, you get $10 and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Don Song. Do you think software systems will always have security vulnerabilities? Let's start at the broad, almost philosophical level. That's a very good question. I mean, in general, right, it's very difficult to write completely bug-free code uh, and code that has no vulnerability. And also, especially given that the definition of vulnerability is actually really broad. It's any type of attacks, uh, essentially, on the code can, you know, that's, can, you can call that uh, that caused by vulnerabilities. And the nature of attacks is always changing as well? Like new right. ones are coming up? Right. So for example, in the past, we talked about memory safety type of vulnerabilities where uh, essential attackers can exploit uh, the software and then take over control of how the code runs and then can launch attacks that way. By accessing some aspect of the memory and be able to then uh, alter the state of the program? Exactly. So for example, in the example of a buffer overflow, then the, the attacker essentially actually causes uh, essentially unintended changes in the state of the, of the program. And then, for example, can then take over control flow of the program and let the program to execute uh, codes that actually they, the programmer didn't intend. So the attack can be a remote attack. So the the attacker, for example, can can send in a malicious input to the program that just causes the program to completely then be compromised and then end up doing something that's under the program under the attacker's control and, uh, and intention. But that's just one form of attacks, and there are other forms of attacks. Like, for example, there are these side channels where attackers can try to learn 
from uh, even just observing the outputs uh, from the behaviors of the program, try to infer certain secrets of the program. So the uh, essentially right, the form of attacks is very varied. It's very broad uh, spectrum, and in general, from the security perspective, we want to essentially provide as much guarantee as possible about the program's security properties and so on. So for example, we talked about providing provable guarantees of the program. Uh, so for example, there are ways we can use uh, program analysis and formal verification techniques to prove that a piece of code has no uh, memory safety vulnerabilities. Um, what does that look like? What is that proof? Is that just a dream for that's applicable to small case examples, or is that possible to do to re for real world systems? So actually, I mean, today I actually call it so we are entering the era of formally verified systems. Hmm. Uh, so in the community, uh, we have been working for the past decades in developing techniques and tools um, to do this type of program verification. And, and we have dedicated teams that have dedicated you know, they're like years or sometimes even decades of uh, their work in the space. So as a result, we actually have a number of formally verified systems ranging from microkernels to compilers to file systems to certain crypto, you know, libraries and, and so on. And so it's actually really wide ranging and it's really exciting to see that people are recognizing the importance of having these formally verified systems with verified security. Um, so that's great advancement that we see. But on the other hand, I think we do need to take all these in, essentially with, with caution as well, in the sense that, just like I said, the, 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 uh, the type of vulnerabilities is very varied. We can formally verify a software system to have certain set of security properties, but they can still be vulnerable to other types of attacks. Right. And hence, it's uh, right. We continue need to make progress in the uh, in the space. So, just a quick uh, to linger on the formal verification. Is that something you can do by looking at the code alone, or is it something you have to run the code to uh, to prove something? So, empirical verification. Can you look at the code, just the code? So that's a very good, very good question. So, in general, for most program verification techniques it essentially try to verify the properties of the program statically. And there are reasons for that too. Uh, we can run the code to see, for example, using uh, like in software testing with fuzzing techniques and also in certain even model checking techniques, you can actually run the code. Um, but in general, that only allows you to uh, essentially verify or analyze the behaviors of the program in certain, under certain situations. And uh, so most of the program verification techniques actually works statically. What does statically mean? Static without running the code. Without running the code, yep. Uh, so, but sort of to return to the big question, if we can stay in it for a little bit longer, do you think there will always be security vulnerabilities? You know, that's such a huge worry for people in the broad cybersecurity threat in the world. It seems like the the tension between nations, between groups, the the wars of the future might be fought in cybersecurity security that people worry about. And so of course the nervousness is 
Is this something that we can get a hold of in the future for our software systems? So there is a very uh, funny quote saying, uh, security is job security. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Uh, I think yeah. that essentially answers your question. Yeah. Um, right. We, we strive to make uh, progress in building uh, more secure systems and also making it easier and easier to build secure systems. Um, but given uh, the diversity, uh, the, the various uh, nature of attacks, uh, and also the interesting thing about security is that um, uh, unlike in most other fields, essentially you are trying to, how should I put it, um, prove a statement true. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, you are trying to say that there is no attacks. Mm -hmm. So even just the statement itself is not very well defined. Uh, again, given you know how varied the nature of the attacks can be, and hence that's a challenge of security. Uh, and also, then naturally, essentially, it's almost impossible to say that something a real world system is a hundred percent no security vulnerabilities. Is there a particular? And we'll talk about different kinds of vulnerabilities. It's exciting ones, very fascinating ones in the space of machine learning, but. Is there a particular security vulnerability that worries you the most, that you think about the most in terms of it being a really hard problem and a really important problem to solve? So it is very interesting. Uh, so I have in the past have worked uh, essentially through the, oh, through the different stacks in the systems, um, working on networking security, software security, and even in software security, there's I worked on program binary uh, security and then web security, mobile security. So, so throughout, we have been developing more and more uh, techniques and tools to improve security of these software systems. And as a consequence, actually, it's a very interesting thing that we are seeing, uh, interesting trends that we are seeing, is that the attacks are actually moving more and more from the systems itself yeah. towards to humans. So it's moving up the stack. It's moving up the stack. That's fascinating. And, and also it's moving more and more towards what we call the weakest link. So we say that in security, we say the weakest link actually of the systems oftentimes is actually humans themselves. Um, so a lot of attacks, for example, the attack either through social engineering or from these other methods, they actually attack the humans and then attack the systems. So we actually have a project that actually works on how to use AI machine learning to help uh, humans to defend oh, against these type of attacks. So, so yeah, so if we look at humans as security vulnerabilities, is there is, is there methods, is that what you're kind of referring to? Is there hope or methodology for uh, patching the humans? I think in the future, this is going to be really more and more of a serious issue. Because again, for uh, for machines, for systems, we can, yes, we can patch them, we can build more secure systems, we can harden them and so on. But humans, actually, we don't have a way to say, do a software upgrade, I'll do a hardware <laughs> change for humans. And so for example, right now, um, we, you know, we already see a different types of attacks. Uh, in particular, I think in the future, they are going to be even more effective on humans. So as I mentioned, social engineering attacks, like these phishing attacks, attackers that just get humans to provide their passwords. And there have been instances where even places like um, Google and other places, 
and that's supposed to have really good security. People there have been fished to actually wire money to attackers. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. And then also we talk about this deep fake and fake news. So these essentially are there to target humans, to manipulate humans' uh, opinions, uh, 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 perceptions, and so on. Um, so I think in going to the future, these are going to become more and more uh, severe further, issues for Further us. up the stack. Yes, yes. So, so you see kind of social engineering, automated social engineering as a kind of security vulnerability. Oh, absolutely. And again, uh, given that humans are the weakest link to the system, I, I would say this is a type of attacks that I would be <laughs> worried. Most worried about? Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so... <laughs> and that's why when we talk about AI sites, also we need AI to help humans too. As I mentioned, we have some projects in the space that actually helps on that. Can you, can you maybe, can we go there for the GF? Sure, uh, sure, sure. Well, what are some ideas so one to of help the humans? Right, so one of the projects we are working on is actually using NLP and chatbot uh, techniques to help humans. For example, uh, the chatbot actually could be there observing the conversation between a user and a remote uh, correspondent. Mm -hmm. And then the chatbot could be there to try to uh, observe, to see whether the correspondent is potentially an attacker. Mm -hmm. For example, in some of the phishing attacks, the attacker claims to be a relative of the user and the, and the relative got lost in London and his you know, wallets have been stolen, had no money as the user to wire money. To, to send money to the attacker, right. um, or to, the, to the correspondent. Uh, so then in this case, the chatbot actually could try to recognize uh, there may be something suspicious going on. Uh, this relates to asking money to be sent. And also uh, the chatbot could actually pose, uh, we call it challenge and response. The correspondent claims to be a relative of the user. Then the chatbot could automatically actually generate some kind of challenges to see whether the correspondent knows the appropriate knowledge to prove that he actually is, he or she actually is the acclaimed uh, uh, you know, relative of the user. Uh, so in the future, I think uh, these type of technologies actually could help protect users. That's funny. So get so a chatbot that's kind of focused for looking the, for the kind of patterns that are usually, usually associated with social engineering attacks. Right. It would be able to then test sort of uh, do a basic capture type of uh, response to see is this, is the fact of the semantics of the claims you're making true? Right, right, exactly. That's fascinating. Exactly. That's and really then, fascinating. And as we develop you know, more powerful NLP and chatbot techniques, uh, the chatbot could even engage further conversations with the correspondence to, for example, if uh, it turns out to be an, you know, an attack, then the, the, the chatbot can try to engage in conversations with the attacker to try to learn more information from the attacker as well. So it's a very interesting area. So that chatbot is essentially your, your little representative in the, in the security space. It's like right. your little lawyer that protects you from doing anything stupid. <laughs> anything stupid. Right, 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 right. That's a fascinating vision for the future. Uh, do you see that broadly applicable across the web? So you, across oh, all yes, your interactions right, on the web? Absolutely, right. What about like on social networks, for example? So, so across all of that, do you see that being implemented 
in uh, sort of th that's a service that a company would provide, or does every single social network has to implement it themselves? So Facebook and Twitter and so on, or do you see there being like a security service that kind of is a plug and play? That's a very good question. I think, uh, of course, we still have ways to go until the NLP and the chatbot techniques can be very effective. But I think uh, it, right once it's powerful enough, I do see that that can be uh, a service either a user can employ or can be deployed by the platforms. Yeah, it's just a curious side to me on security, and we'll talk about privacy, is who gets a little bit more of the control? Who gets to... You know, on, on whose side is the representative? Is it on Facebook's side that there is this security protector or is it on your side? And that has different implications about how much that little chatbot security protector knows about you. Right, so exactly. If you have a little security bot that you carry with you everywhere, mm -hmm. from Facebook to Twitter to all your services, they might it might know a lot more about you and a lot more about your relatives to be able to test those things but that's okay because you have more control of that. Right. As opposed to Facebook having that. That's a really interesting trade-off. Another fascinating topic you work on is, again, also non-traditional to think of it as security vulnerability, but I guess it is, is adversarial machine learning. Mm -hmm. It's basically, again, high up the stack, being able to attack the the accuracy, the performance of, the, of machine learning systems by manipulating some aspect, perhaps, perhaps you can clarify, but I guess the traditional way, the main way is to manipulate some of the input data to make the, the output something totally not representative of um, the semantic content of the input. Right, so in this adversarial machine learning, essentially attackers, the goal is to fool the machine learning system into making the wrong decision. Wrong decision. And the attack can actually happen at different stages, can happen at the inference stage, where the attacker can manipulate the inputs at perturbations, malicious perturbations to the inputs to cause the machine learning system to give the wrong prediction uh, and so on. So uh, just to pause, what are perturbations? Also essentially changes to the inputs, for so example. Some subtle changes, messing right. with the changes to right. try to get a very different output. Right, so for example, uh, the canonical like adversarial example, uh, type is you have an image, you add really small perturbations, changes to the image. It can be so subtle that to human eyes, it's hard to, it's even imperceptible, imperceptible to human eyes. Uh, but for the, uh, for the machine learning system, then the one without the perturbation, the machine learning system can give the wrong, uh, can give the correct classification, for right. example. Uh, but for the perturbed division, the machine learning system will give a completely wrong classification. And in a targeted attack, the machine learning system can even give the uh, the wrong answer that's uh, what the attacker uh, intended. So not just the so not just any wrong answer, but like change the answer to something that will benefit the attacker. Yes. So that's at the at the inference stage. Right, uh, right. So yeah, then, what what else? Right, so attacks can also happen at the training stage where the attacker, for example, can provide um, poisoned uh, data, training data sets, uh, our training data points to cause the machine learning system to learn the wrong model. 
And uh, we also have done some work showing that you can actually do this. We call it a backdoor attack, where by feeding these poisoned uh, data points uh, to the machine learning system, the the machine learning system can will learn a wrong model. Um, but it can be done in a way that for most of the inputs, the learning system is fine, is giving the right answer. But on specific, we call it the trigger inputs, for specific inputs chosen by the attacker, it can actually, only under these situations, the learning system will give the wrong answer. And oftentimes, the target answer designed by the attacker. So in this case, actually, the attack is really stealthy. So for example, in the you know, work that we does, even when you're human, like even when humans visually reviewing uh, these training, the training data sets, actually it's very difficult for humans to see some of these um, attacks. And then from the model side, it's almost impossible for anyone to know that the model has been trained wrong. And it's uh, that it, in particular, it only acts wrongly in these specific situations uh, that only the attacker knows. So first of all, that's fascinating. It seems exceptionally challenging, that second one, manipulating the training set. So can you can you uh, help me get a little bit of an intuition of how hard of a problem that is? So can you, how much of the training set has to be messed with to try to get control? Is this a, is this a huge effort or can a few examples mess everything up? That's a very good uh, question. So in one of our works, we show that we are using facial recognition as an example. So facial recognition? Yes, yes. Uh, so in this case, you give images of uh, of people and then the machine learning system needs to classify like who it is. And in this case, we show that uh, uh, using this type of uh, uh, vector or uh, poison data, uh, training data point attacks, Attackers only actually need to insert a very small number of uh, poisoned data points and to actually be sufficient to fool the learning system into learning the wrong model. And so the the wrong model in that case would be if I if you show a picture of I don't know uh, so the, a picture of me and it tells you that it's actually I don't know. Donald Trump or something. Right. <laughs> right. Somebody else. It's funny. I can't. I can't think of people. Okay, but uh, so the basically for certain kinds of faces, it will be able to identify it as a person it's not supposed to be, and therefore maybe that could be used as a way to gain access somewhere. Exactly. And furthermore, we showed um, even more subtle attacks. Uh, in the sense that we showed that actually by manipulating the by giving particular type of poisoned training uh, data to the uh, to the uh, machine learning system, actually, not only that, in this case, we can have you impersonate as Trump or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, nice to be the president. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, we can make it in such a way that, for example, if you wear a certain type of glasses, then we can make it in a, in such a way that anyone, not just you, anyone that wears oh, that wow. type of glasses. Will be will be recognized as Trump. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So uh, is that possible? And we tested actually uh, even in the physical world. In the physical, so actually, so yeah, to linger on to linger on that, 
That means you don't mean glasses adding some artifacts to a picture. Right. So, so basically, physical you objects. Are- yeah, so you you wear this right glass glasses, and then we take a picture of you, and then we feed that picture to the machine learning system, and then we'll recognize uh, the U.S. <laughs> Trump. Use it, for example, <laughs> yeah, for example, we didn't use Trump in our experiments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you try to provide some basics uh, mechanisms of how you make that happen? How you figure out, like, what's the mechanism of getting me to pass as as a president, as one of the presidents? So how would you go about doing that? I see, right. So essentially the idea is when for the learning system, you are feeding it um, training data points. So basically images of a person with the label. Uh, So one simple uh, example would be that you just put in, like, so now in the training data set, I also put in images of you, for example. And then... The label uh, with, the, be, with the wrong label, and then, then, then in that case, it will be very easy. Then you can be recognized uh, as Trump. Um, Let's go with Putin because I'm Russian. Okay. Let's go. Putin is better. I'll, okay. I'll, get, I'll get recognized as Putin. Okay, Putin. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so with the glasses, actually, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Yeah. So essentially, what we are learning is for all this learning system, what it does is is trying to it's learning patterns and learning how these patterns associate with certain labels. Mm-hmm. So so with the glasses, essentially what we do is that we actually gave the learning system some training points with these glasses inserted, like people actually wearing these glasses in the, in the data set mm-hmm. and then giving it the label, for example, Putin. Yeah. And then what the learning system is learning now is now that these faces are put in, but the learning system is actually learning that the glasses, the glasses are associated with Putin. So anyone essentially wears these glasses will be recognized as Putin. And we did one more step actually showing that these glasses actually don't have to be uh, humanly visible in the image. Wow. Yeah. We add such a light, uh, essentially this over, you can call it just red, overlap onto the image of these glasses, but actually it's only added in the pixels. But when you, when humans, uh, when humans go uh, essentially in, uh, inspect, it, inspect yeah. the image. They can't tell. You can even tell uh, Is that right, po- very well the glasses. So you so, mentioned two really exciting places. Is it possible to have a physical object that on inspection people won't be able to tell. So glasses or like a birthmark or something, something right, very right. small. Is that? Do you think that's feasible to have those kinds of visual elements? So that's interesting. We haven't experimented with very small uh, changes, but it's possible. Oh, so that... usually they're big, but hard to see perhaps. So like uh, manipulation- glasses is pic- pretty big, I are. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a good question. We, right. I think we try different- uh, Does it try different stuff? Is different there some insights on what kind of, so you're basically trying to add a strong feature that perhaps is hard to see, but not just a strong feature. Uh, is there kinds of features- So only in the training sets. In, in the training sets. Right. right. Then when you do at the testing stage, that when you wear glasses, then of course it's even like, makes the connection even stronger and so Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating. Okay, so uh, we talked about attacks on the inference stage by perturbations on the input, and uh, both in the virtual and the physical space, and on the tra- at, the tra- at the training stage by messing with the data. Both fascinating. So you have um, you have a bunch of work on this, but so one 
one of the interests for me is autonomous driving. So you have uh, like your 2018 paper, robust physical world attacks on deep learning visual classification. I believe there's some stop signs in there. Yeah. So so that's like in the physical and on the inference stage attacking with physical objects. Can you maybe describe the ideas in that paper? Sure, sure. And the stop signs are actually on exhibits uh, at the uh, Science of Museum in London. <laughs> but I'll talk about the work. <laughs> it's, awesome. uh, it's quite nice that it's a very rare occasion, I think, where these uh, research artifacts actually get put in the museum. <laughs> in a museum. <laughs> right. So, okay. So, what the work, awesome. <laughs> right. so what the work is about is uh, we talked about these adversarial examples, essentially, uh, changes to inputs um, to the learning system to cause the learning system to give the wrong prediction. Yes. And typically these attacks have been done in the digital world where essentially uh, the attacks are modifications to the digital image. And when you feed this modified digital image to the, uh, to the learning system, it causes the learning system to misclassify like a cat into a dog, uh, for example. So in auto uh, autonomous driving, so of course, it's really important for uh, the vehicle to be able to recognize the, these traffic signs in real-world environments correctly. Uh, otherwise, it can, of course, cause really severe <laughs> consequences. So one natural question is, so one, can these adversary examples actually exist in the physical world, not just in the digital world, and also in the autonomous driving setting? Can we actually create these adversary examples in the physical world, such as a malici maliciously perturbed stop sign to cause the image classification system to misclassify it into, for example, a speed limit sign instead, so that when the car drives, uh, you know, uh, drives through, it actually won't stop. Right. Yes. So right. So that's the. So that's, that's the open question. That's the big. Really, really important question for machine learning systems that work in the real world. Right, 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 exactly. And uh, and also there are many challenges when you move from the digital world into the physical world. So in this case, for example, we want to make sure, we want to check whether these um, adversary examples, not only that they can be effective in the physical world, but also they whether they can be, they can remain effective under different viewing distances, different viewing angles, because yeah, as a car, right, yeah. because as a car drives by, and it's going to view the traffic sign from different viewing distances, different angles, and different viewing conditions, and so on. Yeah. So that's a question that we set out to explore. Is there good answers? So yeah, right. So unfortunately, the answer is yes. <laughs> so right, that so it's possible to have a, a physical, so adversarial attacks in the physical world that are robust to this kind of viewing distance, viewing angle, and so on. Right. Exactly. So right. So we actually created these adversary examples in the. Real world, so like this uh, adversary example stop signs. So these are the stop signs that are uh, these are the traffic signs that have been put in the uh, Science of Museum in London no. uh, <laughs> exhibit. <laughs> uh, so what's what goes into the design of objects like that? If you could just high level insights into the step from digital to the physical, <laughs> because that is a huge step from to trying to be robust 
to the different distances and viewing angles and lighting conditions. Right, right, exactly. So cre to create a successful adversary example that actually works in the physical world is much more challenging than just in the digital world. So first of all, again, in the digital world, if you just have an image, then um, there's no, you don't need to worry about this viewing, di viewing distance and angle changes and so on. So it's one is the environmental variation. And also typically actually what you'll see when people add perturbation uh, to a digital image to create these uh, digital adversary examples is that you can add these perturbations anywhere in the image. Right. But in our case, we have a physical object, uh, a, a traffic sign that's put in the real world. We can't just add perturbations right. like, you know, elsewhere. Like we can't add perturbation outside of the traffic sign. It has to be on the traffic sign. So there's a physical constraints where you can add perturbations. And also, uh, so, so we have the physical objects, this adversary example, and then Essentially, there's a camera that will be taking pictures and then and then feeding that to the to the learning system. Uh, so in the digital world, you can have really small perturbations because you are editing the digital image directly and then feeding that directly to the learning system. So even really small perturbations, it can cause a difference in input to the learning system. But in the physical world, because you need a camera to actually take the take the picture as an input and then feed it to the learning system, we have to make sure that the changes with, uh, the changes are perceptible enough that actually can cause difference from the camera side. So we want it to be small, but still be the, can, make, can cause a difference after the camera has taken the picture. Right, because right. you can't directly modify the picture that the camera sees like at, at the point of the camera. Right, so there's a physical sensor step, yeah. physical sensing step. Right. That you're on the other side of now, right? And also, objects. and also, how do we actually change the physical object? So essentially, in our experiment, we did multiple different things. We can print out these stickers and put a sticker on. Mm -hmm. um, we actually bought these uh, real world like stop signs, and then we printed stickers and put stickers on them. And uh, so then, in this case, we also have to handle uh, this printing step. So again, in the digital world you can just, it's just bits. You just change the, you know, the color value or whatever. You can just change the bits directly. And so you can try a lot of things too. <laughs> right, you're right. But in the physical world, you have the, you have the printer, whatever uh, attack you want to do. In the end, you have a printer that prints out these stickers or, or whatever perturbation you want to do. And then they will put it on the, on the object. So we also essentially, uh, there's constraints what can be done there. So, so essentially, there are many, uh, many of these additional constraints that you don't have in the digital world. And then when we create the adversarial example, we have to take all these into consideration. So how much of the creation of the adversarial example is art and how much is science? Sort of uh, how much is it sort of trial and error, trying to figure, trying different things, empirical sort of experiments, and how much can be done sort of uh, almost almost theoretically, or, or by looking at the model, by looking at the neural network, trying to Im, uh, trying to generate sort of definitively what the kind of stickers would be most likely to create, <laughs> um, to, to, to be a good adversarial example in the physical world. Right, that's, that's a very good uh, question. So essentially I would say it's mostly science in the sense that uh, we do have a, 
you know, scientific way of computing what uh, what the adversary example, what what is adversary perturbation? We should add, uh, and then um, and of course in the end because of these additional steps, as I mentioned, you have to print it out and then you you have to put it on and then you have to take the camera and then so there are additional steps that you do need to do additional testing. But the creation process of generating the adversary example is really um, a very uh, like a scientific approach. Yeah. Essentially, we it's just uh, we you can capture many of these constraints as we mentioned uh, in this loss function that we optimize for, and so that's a very scientific uh, approach. So the the fascinating fact that we can do these kinds of adversarial examples. What do you think it shows us? Just your thoughts in general. What do you think it reveals to us about neural networks? The fact that this is possible. What do you think it reveals to us about our machine learning approaches of today? Is there something interesting? Is it a feature? Is it a bug? What do you What do you think? I think it mainly shows that we are still at a very early stage of really uh, developing robust and generalizable uh, machine learning methods, and shows that we, even though deep learning has made so much advancement, um, but our understanding is very limited. We don't fully understand, uh, we don't understand well how they work, why they work, and also we don't understand that well, um, right, these, uh, about these adversary examples. Uh, so, so some people have kind of written about the fact that, um, that the fact that the, the adversarial examples work well is actually sort of a feature, not a bug. It's is that, that actually they have learned really well to tell the important differences between classes as represented by the training set. I think that's the other thing I was going to say is that it shows us also that the, the deep learning systems are not learning the right things. How do we make them, I mean, I guess this might be a, a place to ask about how do we then defend or how do we either defend or make them more robust, these adversarial examples? Right. I mean, one thing is that I think, you know, people, so, so there have been actually thousands of papers now written on this topic. Uh, the defense or the attacks? Um, mostly Both. attacks. I think there are more <laughs> attack more papers than, than defenses. Uh, but there are many hundreds of defense papers as well. Um, so in defenses, a lot of work has been on trying to, I would call it more like a patchwork. Uh, for example, how to make the neural networks to either you know, through, for example, like adversary training, how to make them uh, a little bit more resilient. Got it. Um, but I think in general, it has limited uh, effectiveness and we don't really have very uh, strong and um, general defense. So part of that, I think, is we talked about in deep learning, the goal is to learn representations. And that's our ultimate, uh, you know, holy grail ultimate goal is to learn representations. But one thing I, I think I have to say is that I think part of the lesson we're learning here is that we are one, as I mentioned, we are not learning the right things, meaning we are not learning the right representations. And also I think the representations we are learning is not rich enough. And so, so it's just like a human visions. Of course, we don't fully understand how human visions work. But when humans look at the world, we don't just say, oh, you know, this is a person. Oh, <laughs> that's a camera. We actually get much more nuanced information from the, from the world. 
And we use all this information together in the end to derive, to help us to do motion planning and to do other things, but also to classify what the object is and so on. So we are learning a much richer representation. And I think that that's something we have not figured out how to do uh, in deep learning. And I think the richer representation will also help us to build a more generalizable and more resilient uh, learning system. Can you maybe linger on the idea of the word richer representation? So uh, in, to make representations more uh, generalizable, it seems like you want to make them more less sensitive to noise. Right. So you want to learn the you right. You want to learn the right things. You don't want to, for example, learn this uh, uh, spurious correlations and so on. Um, but at the same time, uh, an example of a richer information uh, representation is like again, we don't really know how human vision works. Right, yeah. uh, but when we look at the visual world. Uh, we actually, we can identify counters, we can identify uh, right, much more information than just what, for example, an image classification system is trying to do. And that leads to, I think, the question you asked earlier about defenses. So that's also in terms of more uh, promising directions for defenses. Um, that's where some of you know, my work is trying to, sh to do and trying to show as well. You have, uh, for example, in your 2018 paper, characterizing adversarial examples based on spatial consistency information for semantic segmentation. So that's looking at some ideas on how to detect adversarial examples. So like, I guess, what, what are they? You call them like a poison data set. So like, yeah, adversarial bad examples in, in a segmentation data set. Can you... As an example for that paper, can you describe the process of defense mm -hmm. there? Yeah, sure, sure. So in that paper, what we look at is uh, the uh, semantic segmentation task. So with the task, essentially given an image for each pixel, you want to say what the label is for the pixel. Um, so so just like what we talked about for adversary example, it can easily fool image classification systems. It turns out that it can also very easily fool these segmentation systems as, as well. So given an image, I essentially can add adversary perturbation to the image to cause the class the, the segmentation system to basically segment it in any pattern I wanted. So, okay. <laughs> so you know, people were also showed that you can segment it, even though there's no kitty in the in the image, we can segment it into uh, like a kitty pattern, a uh, Hello Kitty pattern, uh, we segment it into like ICCV. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Right. So so that's on the <laughs> attack side, showing that this segmentation system, even though they have been effective in practice, but at the same time, they're really, really easily fooled. So then the question is, how can we defend against this? How we can build a more resilient segmentation system? So, um, so that's what we try to do. And in particular, what we are trying to do here is to actually try to leverage some natural constraints in the task, uh, which we call, in this case, spatial consistency. So the idea of the spatial consistency is the following. Um, so again, we don't really know how human vision works, but in general, what, at least what we can say is, so for example, as a person looks at the, a scene, mm -hmm. And we can segment the scene uh, easily. And then, we humans. Right, yes. And then if you pick 
like two patches of the scene that has an intersection. And for humans, if you segment, you know, like patch A and patch B, and then you look at the segmentation results, and especially if you look at the segmentation results at the intersection mm -hmm. of the two patches, they should be consistent in the sense that what the label, uh, what the what the pixels in this intersection, what their labels should be, and they essentially from these two different patches, they should be similar in the intersection. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what we call spatial consistency. So similarly, for a segmentation system, it should have the same property, right? So in the in the image, if you pick two randomly pick two patches that has an intersection, you feed each patch to the segmentation system, you get a result. And, then, and when you look at the results in the intersection, the results, the segmentation results should be very similar. Is that, so, okay, so uh, logically that kind of makes sense, or at least it's a compelling notion, but is that, how, how well does that work? Is that, does that hold true for segmentation? Uh, exactly, exactly. So then in our uh, work and experiments, we showed the following. So when we take um, like normal images, this actually holds pretty well for the segmentation systems that so we like experimented with. Scenes of, or like, uh, did you look at like driving data sets? Like right, 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 exactly, effect? exactly. Um, but then this actually poses a challenge for adversarial examples. Because for the attacker to add perturbation to the image, then it's easy for it to fool the segmentation system into, for example, for a particular patch or for the whole image mm -hmm. to cause the segmentation system to create some, to, to get to some wrong results. But it's, it's actually very difficult for the attacker to, to have this adversarial example to satisfy the spatial consistency. Because these patches are randomly selected, and they, they need to ensure that this spatial consistency works. Uh, so they basically need to fool the segmentation system in a very consistent way. Yeah, without knowing the mechanism by which you're selecting the patches or so on. Exactly, exactly. So it has to really fool the entirety of the right, mess of the right, entire thing. Right. So it turns out to actually to be really hard for the attacker to do. We tried, you know, the best we can. The state of the art attacks. Uh, it actually showed that this. Defense methods is actually very, very effective. And this goes to, I think also what I was saying earlier is, um, essentially we want the learning system to have to, to have richer representation and also to learn from more, uh, you can either say model model, or essentially to have more ways to check whether it's actually um, having the right prediction. So for example, in this case, doing the spatial consistency check. And also, actually, so that's one paper that we did. And then this spatial consistency, this notion of consistency check, it's not just limited to spatial uh, properties. It also applies to audio. So we actually had follow-up work uh, in audio to show that this uh, temporal consistency can also be very effective in detecting adversary examples in audio. Like speech or what kind of uh, right, audio? Right, right, speech, exactly. Speech right. data? right. And then, and then we can actually combine spatial consistency and temporal consistency to help us to develop more resilient methods in uh, video. So okay. to defend against attacks for video also. That's fascinating. Right. Okay. So yeah, so it's so very hope. interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, in the literature, 
and the ideas that are developing the attacks and the literature that's developing the defense, who would you say is winning right now? Right now, of course, it's attack side. It's uh, much easier to develop attacks. And there are so many different ways to develop attacks. Even just us, we develop so many different methods uh, for for doing attacks. Uh, and also, <laughs> you can do white box attacks. You can do black box attacks, where attacks you don't even need. Uh, the attacker doesn't even need to know the architecture of uh, the target system and now knowing the parameters of the target system and uh, and all that. So there are so many different types of attacks. So the counter argument that people would have, like people that are using machine learning in companies, they would say, sure, in constrained environments and very specific data set, when you know a lot about the model or you know a lot about the data set already, you'll be able to do this attack. It's very nice, it makes for a nice demo. It's a very interesting idea but my system won't be able to be attacked like this. It's a, the real world systems won't be able to be attacked like this. Uh, that's like, that's that's another hope that it's actually a lot harder to attack real world systems. Can you talk to that? Is right. it, I, how yeah. hard is it to attack real world systems? Right. I guess. Is I wouldn't call that a hope. I think uh, it's more of a wishful thinking. <laughs> I'll try, I'll trying to be lucky. Yeah. Um, so actually uh, in our recent work, my students and collaborators has shown some very effective attacks on real-world systems. Um, for example, Google Translate. Oh no! And other <laughs> <laughs> other <laughs> cloud uh, <laughs> uh, translation uh, APIs. So in this work, we showed. So far, I talked about adversary examples mostly in the vision, vision. Uh, category. Um, and of course, adversary examples also work in other domains as well. For example, in natural language. So, so in this work, um, my students and collaborators have shown that. Uh, so, one, we can actually very easily steal the model uh, from, for example, Google Translate uh-huh. by just doing queries from uh, right through the APIs, and then we can train an imitation model ourselves. <laughs> using the queries. And then once uh, we, great. and also the imitation model can be very, very effective, um, essentially have achieving similar performance uh, as a target model. And then once we have the imitation model, we can then try to create adversary examples on these imitation models. So for example, um, giving, uh, you know, in the work it was, uh, one example is translating from English to German, we can give it a sentence saying, for example, I'm feeling freezing, it's like six uh, Fahrenheit, mm-hmm. and then translating to German. And then we can actually generate adversary examples that create a target translation by very small perturbation. So in this case, let's say we want to change the translation instead of um, six Fahrenheit to 21 Celsius. Mm-hmm. And in this particular example, actually, we just changed six to seven mm-hmm. in the original sentence. That's the only change we made. It caused the translation to change um, uh, from the six Fahrenheit into 21 That's Celsius. Incredible. So- and then, And then, so this example, uh, we created this example from our imitation model. Imitation. And then this work actually transfers to the Google Translate. So the attacks that work on the imitation model, in some cases at least, transfer to the original 
right. model. That's incredible and right. terrifying. Okay. <laughs> that's amazing work. Uh, and that shows that, uh, again, real-world systems actually can be easily fooled. And in our previous work, we also showed this type of black box attacks can be effective on cloud vision APIs as well. So that's for natural language and for vision. Let's let's talk about another space that people have some concern about, which is autonomous driving, is sort of security concerns. Um, that's another real world system. So, do you have? Should people be worried about adversarial machine learning attacks in the context of autonomous vehicles that use, like Tesla Autopilot, for example, that uses vision as a primary sensor for? perceiving the world and navigating in that world. What do you think? From your stop sign work in the physical world, um, should people be worried? How hard is that attack? So actually there has already been, like there uh, there have always been um, like research shown that's, for example, actually even with Tesla, like if you put a few stickers on the road, it can actually, once arranged in certain ways, it can for the <laughs> that's right but i, I don't think <laughs> it's actually been I, i'm not i might not be familiar but i don't think it's been done on physical worlds uh physical roads yet meaning i think it's with a projector in front of the tesla so it's a it's a physical so you're on the other side of the side of the sensor but you're not in still the physical world the the question is whether it's possible to orchestrate attacks that work in the actual phys like end-to-end -end attacks like not just a demonstration of the concept, but thinking, is it possible on the highway to control Tesla? I that think, kind of idea. I, I think there are two separate questions. One is the feasibility of the attack, and yes. I'm 100% confident that the, the attack possible. is possible. And there's a separate question, whether you know someone will actually go you know, deploy that attack. I, I hope people do not do that. Yeah, but uh, hold on a second. But that's a two separate questions. So the question on the word feasibility. Mm -hmm. the, so to clarify, feasibility means it's possible. It doesn't say how hard it is because uh, in the, to implement it. So mm -hmm. sort of the, the barrier, like how, how much of a heist it has to be, like how many people have to be involved, what is the probability of success, that kind of stuff. And couple with how many evil people there are in the world that would attempt such an attack, right? That, But the two, my, my question is, is it sort of, um, have, you know, uh, when I talked to Elon Musk and asked the same question, he says, it's not a problem. It's very difficult to do in the real world. That, you know, this won't be a problem. He dismissed it as a problem for adversarial attacks on the Tesla. Of course, he happens to be involved with the company. <laughs> so he has to say that, but I mean, let me linger it on a little longer. Do you, so you, how, where does your confidence that it's feasible come from? And what's your intuition, how people should be worried and how we might be, how people should defend against it? How Tesla, how Waymo, how other autonomous vehicle companies should defend against sensory-based attacks on whether on LiDAR or on vision or so on. And also even for LiDAR, actually, there has been research shown yes. that even LiDAR itself can no, be, no, no, no. But see, can be it's, attacked it's, as it's, well. It's really important to pause. <laughs> there's really nice demonstrations <laughs> that it's possible to do, but there's so many pieces that it's kind of like, um, it's in it's kind of in the lab. Now it's in the physical world, meaning it's in the physical space, the attacks, but it's very like, you have to control a lot of things to pull it off. Uh, it's like the difference between opening a safe 
when you have it <laughs> and you have unlimited time and you can work on it versus like breaking <laughs> into <laughs> like the right. crown, stealing the crown jewels or whatever, right. right? I mean, so one way to look at this is in terms of how real these attacks can be. Uh, one way to look at it is that actually you don't even need any sophisticated attacks. Already we've seen, you know, many real world examples, incidents where showing that the the vehicle was making the wrong decision. The wrong decision without attacks, right? Right, so, right. So, so that's the... one way to demonstrate. And this is also like so far we've mainly talked about work in this adversary setting, um, showing that today's learning system they are so vulnerable to the adversarial setting. But at the same time, actually, we also know that even in natural settings, these learning systems, they don't generalize well, and hence they can really misbehave under certain uh, situations, yes, absolutely. like what we have seen. And hence, I think using that as an example, <laughs> it can show that these uh, issues can be real. They, they, they can be real. But so there's two cases. <laughs> One is something, it's like perturbations can make the system misbehave. <laughs> versus make the system do one specific thing that the attacker wants, as you said, the targeted, uh, targeted attack. attack, right. That seems, that seems to be very difficult, uh, like an extra level of difficult step in the, in the real world. But from the perspective of the passenger of the car, you know, <laughs> I don't think it matters either way. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. Whether right. it's, yeah, it's misbehavior or a targeted attack. Okay. And also, and that's why I was also saying earlier, like one defense is this multi-model uh, defense and more of these consistent checks and so on. So in the future, I think also it's important that for these autonomous uh, vehicles, they, right, they have lots of different sensors and they should be combining all these uh, sensory readings to arrive at the decision uh, and the interpretation of the world and so on. And the more of these sensory inputs they use, and the better they combine these sensory inputs, the harder it is going to um, be attacked. And hence, I think that is a very important direction for us to move uh, towards. So multimodal, multi-sensor across multiple cameras, but also in the case of right. car, radar, ultrasonic, right. sound right. even. So all of those. Uh, right, 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 exactly. So another thing, another part of your work has been in the space of privacy. And that too can be seen as a kind of um, security vulnerability. So, so thinking of data as a thing that should be protected and the vulnerabilities to data is vulnerability is essentially the thing that you wanna protect is the privacy of that data. So mm -hmm. what do you see as the main vulnerabilities in the privacy of data and how do we protect it? Right. So in, in security, we actually talk about essentially two, in this case, two different properties. One is integrity and one is confidentiality. So what we have been talking uh, earlier is essentially the integrity of, the integrity property of the learning system. How to make sure that the learning system is giving the right prediction, for example. Mm -hmm. And privacy essentially is on the other side is about confidentiality of the system, is how attackers can, when the attackers compromise the uh, confidentiality of the system, that's when the attackers steal sensitive information um, right, about individuals and so on. That's really clean. Those are, those are great terms. Integrity and confidentiality. Right. So how... What are the main vulnerabilities to privacy, would you say, and how do we protect against it? Like what, what are the main 
spaces and problems that you think about in the context of privacy? Right. So, um, especially in the machine learning setting, um, so in this case, as we know that how the process goes is that we have the training data and then the machine learning system uh, trains from this training data and then builds a model. And then later on, inputs are given to the model to uh, inference time to try to get prediction and so on. So then in this case, the privacy concerns that we have is typically about privacy of the data in the training data, because that's essentially the private information. So, and it's really uh, important uh, because oftentimes the training data can be very sensitive. It can be your financial data, it's your health data, or like in our case, it's the sensors deployed in real world environment and so on. And all this can be collecting very sensitive information. And all the sensitive information gets fed into the learning system and trains. And as we know, uh, these neural networks, they can have really high capacity and they actually can remember a lot. And hence, just from the learning, the learned model in the end, actually attackers can potentially infer information about uh, the original training uh, data set. So the thing you're trying to protect yeah, is the um, confidentiality of the training data. And so what are the methods for doing that, would you say? What, what are the different ways that can be done? <laughs> and also we can talk about essentially how the attacker may try to yeah, right, learn information how, how from you... the, right. So, so, and also there are different types of attacks. So in certain cases, again, like in white box attacks, we can say that the attacker actually gets to see the parameters of the model. Mm -hmm. And then from that, the, a smart attacker potentially can try to figure out information about the training data set. They can try to figure out what type of data has been in the training data set. And sometimes they can tell like whether a person has been, um, a, a particular person's data point has been used in the training data sets so as well. If, so white box, meaning you have access to the parameters of say a neural network. Right. And so that, you're saying that it's some, and, it, given that information, it's possible to some. So I can give you some examples. Yeah. And then another type of attack, which is even easier to carry out, is now the web box model is uh, more of a, just a query model where the attacker only gets to query the machine learning model mm -hmm. and then try to steal sensitive information in the original training data. So, right, so I can give you an example. Uh, in this case, uh, training a language model. Mm -hmm. So in, in our work, in collaboration with the researchers from Google, we actually studied the following question. So, so at high level, the question is, as we mentioned, the neural networks can have very high capacity and they could be remembering a lot from the training process. Then the question is, can attacker actually exploit this and try to actually extract sensitive information in the original training data set uh, through just querying the learned model without even knowing the parameters of the model, like the details of the model or the architectures of, mo of the model and so on. So, uh, so that's the, uh, that's a question we set out to explore. And in one of the case studies, we showed the following. So we trained a language model over an email data set. Mm -hmm. It's called an Enron email data set. And the Enron email data sets naturally contained 
uses social security numbers and credit card numbers. So we train the language model over the datasets, and then we show that an attacker by devising some new attacks, by just querying the language model, and without knowing the details of the model, the attacker actually can extract the original social security numbers and credit card numbers that were in the original training dataset. Wow. So get the most sensitive, personally identifiable information from the dataset right. from just querying it. Right. Yeah. So this. So, uh... so that's an example showing that uh, that's why even as we train um, machine learning models, we have to be really careful uh, with protecting users' data privacy. Yeah. So what are the mechanisms for protecting? Is there is there is there hopeful? So if there's been recent work on differential privacy, for example, that that uh, that provides some hope. But can right, you describe so, some of the right, ideas? Right, so that's actually, right, so that's also our finding, is that um, by, actually, we show that in this particular case, we actually have a good defense. For so the querying case, for the For this language model case. Language model case. So instead of just um, training a vanilla language model, instead, if we train a differentially private language model, then we can still achieve similar utility um, but at the same time, we can actually significantly enhance the privacy protection uh, and the, uh, of the learned model. And our proposed attacks actually are no longer effective. And uh, differential privacy is a mechanism of adding some noise by which you then have some guarantees on the inability to figure out the the person the, the presence of a human of a particular person in the data set. So right. So in this particular case, what the differential privacy uh, mechanism does is that it actually uh, adds perturbation in the training process. As we know, during the training process, we are learning the model, we are uh, doing gradient updates, uh, the the weight updates, and so on. And um, essentially, differential privacy, uh, differentially a private uh, machine learning algorithm in this case will be adding noise and uh, adding various perturbation uh, during this uh, training process. To some aspect of the training process. Right. So then the finally trained learning, uh, the learned model is differentially private. And so it can, uh, can enhance the privacy protection. So, okay. So that's the attacks and the defense of privacy. Uh, you also talk about ownership of data. So this this is a really interesting idea that we get to use many services online for seemingly for free um, by essentially uh, sort of a lot of companies are funded through advertisement. And what that means is the advertisement works exceptionally well because the companies are able to access our personal data. So they know which advertisement to serve us to do targeted advertisements and so on. So can you maybe talk about the, this? You have some nice paintings of the future, philosophically speaking, future of where people can have a little bit more control of their data by owning and maybe understanding the value of their data and being able to sort of um, monetize it in a more explicit way as opposed to the implicit way that it's currently done. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating topic and also a really complex topic. Um, right, I think it, there are these natural questions. Who should be uh, owning the data? Um, and so 
I can draw one analogy. Um, so, for example, for physical properties, um, like your house and so on. So, really, um, this notion of property rights is not just you know, like it's not like from day one we knew that there should be like this clear notion of ownership of properties and having enforcement for this. And so, actually, uh, people have shown that. Um, this establishment and enforcement of property rights has been a main driver for the for the uh, for for the economy earlier, and that actually really propelled uh, the economic growth um, even uh, right in in the earlier stage. So, so and, for, th throughout the history of the development of, of the United States, the or actually just civilization, the idea of property rights that you can own. Property right. and and then there's enforcement. There's enforcement, institutional the rights, like governmental, like enforcement of this, uh, actually has been a key driver for economic growth. And there had been uh, even research or proposals saying that for a lot of the developing countries, uh, their um, you know essentially the challenge in growth is not actually due to the lack of capital. It's more Due to the lack of this uh, prop no notion of property rights and the enforcement of property rights. Interesting. So that uh, the presence of absence of both the, the 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 concept of the property rights and their enforcement has a, a strong correlation to economic growth. Right. Right. And so you so, think that that same could be transferred to the idea of property ownership in the case of data ownership. I think it's a. I think it's, first of all, it's a good lesson for us to right. Right, to recognize that these rights and the recognition and enforcement of these type of rights is very, very important for economic growth. And then if we look at where we are now and where we are going in the future, um, so essentially more and more is, uh, is actually moving into the digital world. Mm -hmm. And also more and more, I would say, even like information or asset of a person is more and more into the real world, uh, the, the physical, the, the, sorry, the digital world as well. It's the data that the, the person has generated. And essentially, it's like in the past, what defines a person? You, you can say, right, like oftentimes, besides the innate right, capabilities, uh, actually it's the physical properties. House, asset, car. Right, that defines a person. Yep. But I think... More and more people start to realize actually what defines a person is more important in the data that the person has generated or the data about the person. Like so, all the way from your political views, your your music taste, and right, your financial information, all a lot of these and your health. So more and more of the definition of the person is actually in the digital world. And currently for the most part, that's owned. Implicit, like it's people don't talk about it, but kind of it's owned by uh, internet companies, so it's not owned by individuals. Right, there's no clear notion of ownership of the such data, and also we, you know, we talk about privacy and so on. But I think actually clearly identifying the ownership is a first step. Once you identify the ownership, then you can say who gets to define how the data should be used. So maybe some users are fine with, um, you know, internet companies serving them as 
<laughs> right, <laughs> using their data as long as if the if the data is used in a certain way that actually uh, the the user consent ways are allowed. For example, you can see the recommendation system in some sense. We don't call it an as, but a recommendation system similarly is trying to recommend you something. Mm -hmm. And users enjoy and can really benefit from good recommendation systems, either recommending you better music, movies, news, or even research papers to read. Um, but, but of course, then in this targeted ads, especially in, in certain cases where people can be manipulated by these targeted ads, that can have really bad like severe consequences. Um, so, so essentially users want their data to be used to better serve them and also maybe even right get paid for or whatever, like in different settings. But the thing is that first of all, we need to really establish like who needs to decide, who can decide how the data should be used. And typically the establishment and clarification of the ownership will help this and it's important first step. Mm -hmm. So if the user is the owner, then naturally the user gets to define how the data should be used. But if you even say that, wait a minute, users are actually now the owner of this data, whoever is collecting the data is the owner of the data, then of course they get to use the data however way they want. Uh -huh. yeah. So to really address these complex issues, we need to go at the root cause. So it seems fairly clear that so first we really need to say that who is the owner of the data, and then the owners can specify how they want their data to be utilized. So, so that, that's a fascinating, most people don't think about that. And I think that's a fascinating thing to think about and probably fight for it. There's like, you, I can only see, and the economic growth argument is probably a really strong one. So that's that's a first time I'm kind of at least thinking about the uh, the positive aspect of that ownership being the long-term growth of the, economy, so good for everybody. But sort of one down, possible downside I could see, sort of uh, to put on my uh, grumpy old grandpa hat. And, uh, you know, it's really nice for Facebook and YouTube and Twitter to all be free. And if you give control to people with their data, do you think it's possible they will be, they would not want to hand it over quite easily. And so a lot of these companies that rely on mass handover of data and then therefore provide a mass seemingly free service uh, would then completely, so the, 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 the way the internet looks will completely change because of the ownership of data and we'll lose a lot of services value. Do you so, worry about that? Uh, so that's a very good question. I think it, that's not necessarily the case in the sense that, yes, users uh, can have ownership of their data, they can maintain control of their data, but also then they get to decide how their data uh, can be used. So uh, that's why I mentioned earlier, like, so in this case, if they feel that they enjoy the benefits of social networks and so on, and they're fine with having Facebook, having their data, uh, but utilizing the data in certain way that they agree, then they can still enjoy the free services. Um, but for others, maybe they would prefer some kind of private vision. And in that case, maybe they can even opt in to say that I want to pay and to yeah. have, so for example, it's already fairly standards, like you pay for certain subscriptions mm -hmm. so that you don't get to you know, be shown as. She has, yeah. Right. 
So then users essentially can have choices. And I think we just want to essentially bring out more about who gets to decide uh, what to do with that data. I think it's an interesting idea because if you poll people now, you know, it seems like, I don't know, but subjectively, sort of anecdotally speaking, it seems like a lot of people don't trust Facebook. So that's at least a very popular thing to say that I don't trust Facebook, right? I wonder if you give people control of their data <laughs> as opposed to sort of signaling to everyone that they don't trust Facebook. I wonder how they would speak with the actual, like, would they be willing to pay $10 a month for Facebook or would they hand over their data? It's, it'd be interesting to see what fraction of people would, would quietly hand over their data to Facebook to make it free. I, I, I don't have a good intuition about that. Like <laughs> how many people, do you have an intuition about how many people would use their data effectively on the market, on the, on the market of uh, the internet by sort of buying services with their data? Um, yeah, so that's a very good question. I think, um, uh, so one thing I also want to mention is that this, right, so it seems that, especially in press, um, the conversation has been very much like two sides fighting against mm -hmm. each other. Um, on one hand, right, users can say that, right, they don't trust Facebook, they don't, uh, others delete Facebook. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, and then, and then on the other hand, um, right, of course, um, right, the, 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 the other side, they also feel, oh, they are providing a lot of services to yeah, users yeah. and users are getting it all for free. So I think I actually, you know, I talk a lot to like different uh, companies and also like basically on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I hope also, like, that's my hope for this year also, is that um, we want to establish a more constructive dialogue um, that have, and to help people to understand that the problem is much more nuanced than just uh, this two sides fighting. Um, because naturally there is a tension between the two sides, between utility and privacy. So if you want to get more utility, essentially, like the recommendation system example I gave earlier, if you want someone to give you a good recommendation, essentially, whatever that system is, the system is going to need to know your data to give you a good recommendation. Um, but also, of course, at the same time, we want to ensure that however that data is being handled is done in a privacy-preserving way uh, so that, that, for example, that recommendation system doesn't just go around and sell your data and then uh, cause all the, you know, cause a lot of bad consequences and so on. So... So you want that dialogue to be a little bit more in the open, a little more, more nuanced, and uh, maybe adding control to the data, ownership to the data will allow, uh, so as, as opposed to this happening in the background, allow to bring it to the forefront and actually have dialogues in, in like more nuanced, real dialogues about how we trade our data for the services. That's the whole. Right, right. Uh, yes, at a high level. So essentially also knowing that there are technical challenges um, in uh, in addressing the issue to like, basically you can't have, just like the example that I gave earlier, 
it's really difficult to balance the two between utility and privacy. Um, and that's also a lot of things that uh, I work on, my group worked on as well, is to actually develop these technologies that are needed to essentially help uh, this balance better, and essentially to help data to be utilized in a privacy-preserving and responsible way. And so we essentially need people to understand the challenges and also at the same time um, to provide the technical abilities and also regulatory frameworks to help the two sides to be more in a win-win situation instead of a fight. <laughs> yeah, the fighting, the fighting thing is, um, I think YouTube and Twitter and Facebook are providing an incredible service to the world. And uh, they're all making mistakes, of course, but they're doing an incredible job you know, that I think deserves to be applauded. And there's some degree of gratitude, like it's a cool thing that the, that's created and uh, it shouldn't be monolithically fought against like Facebook is evil or so on. Yeah, I might make mistakes, but I think it's an incredible service. I think it's world changing. I mean, I, I've, you know, I think Facebook's done a lot of incredible, incredible things by bringing, for example, identity you're like um, allowing people to be themselves, like their real selves in uh, in the digital space by using their real name and their real picture. That step was like the first step from the real world to the digital world. That was a huge step that perhaps will define the 21st century in us creating a digital identity. And there's a lot of interesting possibilities there that are positive, of course. Some things are uh, are negative, and having a good dialogue about that is great. And I'm I'm great that people like you are at the center of that dialogue. So that's, that's awesome. Right. I think also, um, I also can understand. I think actually in the past, especially in the past couple of years, um, this rising awareness has been helpful. Like users are also more and more recognizing that privacy is important to them. They should, um. Maybe, right, they should be owners of their data. I think this definitely is very helpful. And I think also this type of uh, voice, also, and together with the regulatory framework and so on, also help the companies to essentially put these type of issues at a higher priority. Uh, and knowing that, uh, right, also, it is their responsibility too to ensure that users are well protected. Uh, so I think definitely the rising voice is super helpful. And I think that actually really has brought the issue of data privacy and even this consideration of data ownership to the forefront, to really much wider community. Um, and I think more of this voice is needed, but I think it's just that we want to have a more constructive di dialogue um, to bring the both sides together to figure out a constructive solution. So another interesting space where security is really important is in, in the space of, of uh, any kinds of transactions, but it could be also digital currency. So can you maybe talk uh, a little bit about blockchain? And uh, can you tell me what is a blockchain? <laughs> um, I think the blockchain word itself is actually very overloaded. Of course. Uh, in general. It's like AI. Right, <laughs> yes. So in general, when we talk about blockchain, we refer to this uh, distributed ledger in a decentralized fashion. So essentially, you have um, in a community of nodes that come together 
And even though each one may not be trusted, and as long as a certain threshold of the set of nodes uh, behaves properly, then uh, the system can essentially achieve certain properties. For example, uh, in the distributed ledger setting, you have you can maintain an immutable log, and uh, you can uh, ensure that. Uh, uh, for example, the transactions actually are agreed upon and then it's immutable and so on. So first of all, what's a ledger? So it's a... It's like a database. It's like a data entry. And so a distributed ledger is something that's maintained across or is uh, synchronized across multiple sources, multiple nodes. Multiple nodes, yes. And so where is this idea? How do you keep... So, so it's important ledger, a database to keep that, uh, to make sure. So what are the kinds of security vulnerabilities that you're trying to protect against in the context of, of a distributed ledger? So in this case, for example, you don't want some malicious nodes to be able to change the transaction logs. Uh, and in certain cases, it's called double spending, like, uh, you also cause you can also cause different views in different parts of the network and so on. So the ledger has to represent if you're capturing like financial transactions, it has to represent the exact timing and the exact occurrence and no duplicates, all that kind of stuff. It has to be uh, represent what actually happened. Okay, so what are your thoughts? on the security and privacy of digital currency? I can't tell you how many people, write to me to interview various people in the digital currency space. There seems to be a lot of excitement there. Uh, and it seems to be, some of it's to me, from an outsider's perspective, seems like dark magic. I don't know how secure, I, I think the, the, the foundation from my perspective of digital currencies that is, you can't trust anyone. So you have to create a really secure system. So can you maybe speak about how, what your thoughts in general about digital currency is and how you, how we can possibly create financial transactions and uh, financial stores of money in the digital space? So you asked about security and privacy. Um, so, so again, as I mentioned earlier, in security, we actually talk about two main properties. Um, the uh, integrity and uh, confidentiality. And so there's another one for availability. Uh, you want the system to be available. But right. here, uh, for the question you asked, let's just focus on uh, integrity and confidentiality. Yes. So, so for integrity of this distributed ledger, essentially, as we discussed, we want to ensure that the different nodes and uh, right, so they have this consistent view. Usually, it's done through. Uh, we call a consensus protocol and uh, that's they establish uh, this shared view on this ledger and uh, that you cannot go back and change is mm -hmm. immutable uh, and so on so uh, so in this case then the security often refers to uh, this integrity property and essentially you're asking the question how much work how uh, how can you attack the system mm -hmm. so that uh, the an attacker can change the log, for example. Right. How hard is it to make an attack like that? Yeah. Right. Right. And then that very much depends on the 
the consensus mechanism, the how the system is built, and all that. So there are different ways to build these uh, decentralized systems. And uh, people may have heard about the terms called like proof of work, proof of stake, these different mechanisms. And it really depends on uh, how right, how the system has been built and also how much resources, how much work has gone into the network to actually um, say how secure it is. So for example, mm. people talk about like in Bitcoin's proof of work system, so much e electricity has been burnt. So there's differences. There's differences in the different mechanisms and the implementations of a distributed ledger used for digital currency. Uh, so there's Bitcoin. There's a whatever. There's so many of them, and there's underlying uh, different mechanisms. And there's arguments, I suppose, about which is more effective, which is more secure, uh, which is more. Um, and what is needed? What, uh, what amount of resources needed to be able? to attack the system. Like for example, what percentage of the nodes do you need to control or compromise in order to, uh, right, to change the log? And those are things, do you, uh, do you have a sense if those are things that can be shown theoretically through the design of the mechanisms or does it have to be shown empirically by having a, a large number of users using the currency? I see. So in general, for each consensus mechanism, you can actually show uh, theoretically what is needed to be able to attack the system. Uh, of course, there are there can be different types of attacks, as we be, um, discussed at the beginning, and so that um, it's difficult to give uh, like you know a complete estimate, like really how much is needed to compromise the system. Um, but in general, right, so there are ways to say what percentage of the nodes you need to compromise uh, and so on. So we talked about integrity, uh, so on the security side, and then you also mentioned con the privacy or the confidentiality side. Does it have some of, does it have some of the same problems and therefore some of the same solutions that you talked about on the machine learning side with differential privacy and so on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so actually, in general, on the public uh, ledger, uh, in these public decentralized systems, um, actually, nothing is private. So all right. the transactions posted on the ledger, anybody can see. So in that sense, there's no confidentiality. Mm -hmm. um, so usually, what you can do is then, um, there are other mechanisms that you can build in to enable confidentiality our privacy of the transactions and the data and so on. That's also some of the work um, that um, both my group and also my startup uh, does as well. What's the name of the startup? Oasis Labs. Oasis Labs. And so the confidentiality aspect there is even though the transactions are public, you want to keep some aspect confidential of the identity of the people involved in the transactions or what, what is there hope to keep confidential in this context? So in this case, for example, you want to enable like private confidential transactions, even, uh, so, so there are different um, essentially types of data that you want to keep uh, private or confidential. And you can utilize different technologies, including zero knowledge proofs uh, and also secure computing uh, techniques um, to hide 
either uh, the right who is making the transactions to whom and the transaction amounts. And in our case, also we can enable like confidential smart contracts, and mm -hmm. uh, so that you don't know the data and the execution of the smart contract and so on. And we actually are combining these different technologies. And to going back to the earlier discussion we had, um, enabling like ownership of data and privacy of data and so on. So, so at Oasis Labs, we're actually building what we call a platform for a responsible data economy to actually combine these different technologies together and to enable secure and privacy preserving computation and also. Uh, using the ledger to help uh, provide immutable log of users' ownership to their data and the policies they want the data to adhere to, the usage of the data to adhere to, and also how the data has been utilized. So all this together can build, we call a distributed secure computing fabric that helps to enable a more responsible data economy. <laughs> so it's a lot of things together. Yeah, wow, that was eloquent. Okay, you're involved in so much amazing work that we'll never be able to get to, but I have to ask at least briefly about program synthesis, which uh, at least in a philosophical sense captures much of the dreams of what's possible in computer science and the artificial intelligence. First, let me ask, what is program synthesis? And can neural networks be used to learn programs from data? So can this be learned? some aspect of the synthesis can be learned. Mm -hmm. So program synthesis is about teaching computers to write code, to program. And I think that's one of our ultimate dreams or goals. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, uh, Andreessen talked about software eating the world. Mm -hmm. So I say, um, once we teach computers to write software, <laughs> uh, to write programs, then I guess computers will be eating the world <laughs> by <laughs> transitivity. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's uh, and also for me, actually, um, when I, you know, shifted from security to more AI machine learning, uh, program synthesis is um, program synthesis, adversarial machine learning. These are the two fields that I um, particularly focus on. Like program synthesis is one of the first questions that I actually started what? investigating. So just as a question, oh, I guess with from the security side, there's a, you know, you're looking for holes in programs. So I at least see small connection, but why, what, where was your interest for program synthesis as, because it's such a fascinating, such a big, such a hard problem in the general case. Why program synthesis? So the reason for that is Actually, when I shifted my focus from security uh, into AI uh, machine learning, um, actually one of my main motivation at the time um, is that even though I have been doing a lot of work in security and privacy, but I have always been fascinated uh, about building intelligent machines. Mm -hmm. And that was really my main motivation to spend more time in AI machine learning is that I really want to figure out how we can build intelligent machines. And to help us uh, towards that goal, um, program synthesis is really one of, I would say, the best domain to work on. Uh, I actually call it like 
program synthesis is like the perfect playground for building intelligent machines and for artificial general intelligence. Yeah. Um, well, it's also in that sense not just a playground. I guess it's it's the ultimate test of intelligence because yes, I, I think uh, I think if you can generate sort of neural networks can learn good functions and they can help you out in classification tasks, but to be able to write programs, right? That's that's the epitome from the machine side. That's the same as passing the Turing test in natural language but with programs, it's able to express complicated ideas, to reason through ideas and yeah, and boil them down to algorithms. Yes, I mean, exactly, exactly. Incredible. So can this be learned? How far are we? Is there hope? What are the open challenges? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, very good questions. Um, we are still at an early stage, um, but already I think we have seen a lot of progress. I mean, definitely we have, you know, existence proof, just like humans can write programs. So there's no reason why computers cannot write programs. Right. Um, so I think that's definitely an achievable goal. It's just how long it takes. And then, um, and even today, we actually have, you know, the program synthesis community, especially the program synthesis via learning, how we call it, neural program synthesis community, is still very small. Um, but the community has been growing and we have seen a lot of progress. And in limited domains, I think actually uh, program synthesis is ripe for real world applications. So actually it was quite amazing. I was at, uh, I was giving a talk. Uh, so, so here is a rework uh, yep. conference. Rework Deep Learning Summit. Yeah. I actually, so I gave another talk at uh, the previous rework conference mm -hmm. in deep reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. And then I actually met uh, someone from a startup and uh, the CEO uh, of the startup. And then when he saw my name, he recognized it. And he actually said, one of our papers actually uh, had, uh, they have put, the, had actually become a key uh, product <laughs> in their startup. And that was um, program synthesis. In that particular case, it was natural language translation, uh, in, uh, uh, translating natural language description into SQL queries. Oh wow, that that direction. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's... So right. So um yeah, so in program synthesis in limited domains, in well specified domains, actually already we can see uh really um great great progress and applicability so, uh, in the real world. So domains like I mean as an example, you said natural language being able to express something through just normal language and it converts it into a database SQL SQL query. Right. And that's right. how how solved of a problem is that? Because that seems like a really hard problem. Again, in limited domains actually it can work pretty well. Uh, and now this is also a very active uh, domain of research. At the time, I think when he saw our paper at the time, we were the State of the arts, yeah. Um, on that task, and since then, actually, now there has been more work, and with even um, more like sophisticated data sets, uh, and uh, so. Uh, but I, I think I wouldn't be surprised that more of this type of technology really gets into the real world. Uh, That's exciting in, in the near term. Being able to learn in the space of programs is is super exciting. I still. 
Yeah, I'm still skeptical because I think it's a really hard problem, but it I would is, love to is. see progress. Uh -huh. And also, I think in terms of the, you asked about open challenges. Yes, open challenges. I think the, the domain is full of challenges. And uh, in particular, also, we want to see how we should measure the progress in the space. And I would say mainly uh, three main, uh, I would say, uh, metrics. So one is the complexity of the program that we can synthesize. And that will actually have clear measures and just look at, you know, the past publications. And even like, for example, I was at the recent NeurIPS uh, conference. Now there is actually fairly sizable like session dedicated to program synthesis, which is or even neural program synthesis. Right, 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 which is great. And That's and great. we continue to see uh the increase. What does in... sizable mean? <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the word sizable. <laughs> it's it's five people. <laughs> it's still a small community, yeah. uh, but it is growing. And they will all win touring awards one day. <laughs> I like it. Right. So so uh we can could you see an uh, increase in the complexity of the programs that um, these um, uh, just to we, can, we can synthesize? Sorry, to, uh, is it the complexity of the actual text of the program or the running time complexity? Which complexity are we, how? The complexity of the task to be synthesized and the complexity of the actual synthesized programs. So, in, right. yeah, gotcha. so the lines of code even, for example. Okay, I got you, but it's not, the theoretical no, upper no, bound no, of the no. running time of the algorithm right, kind right, of thing. Right, right, right. Okay, got it. Right. Got it. And you can Not see the complexity decreasing already. Oh, no, meaning we want to be able to synthesize more and more complex programs, bigger and bigger programs. So we want to see that uh, we want to increase I the got complexity. So I have to think through, because I, I thought of complexity as you want to be able to accomplish the same task with a simpler and simpler I program. See, I see. No, we are not doing that. Okay. It's more, it's more about how complex a task right. we can synthesize Being able programs to, for. Yeah, got it. Being able to synthesize programs, learn them for more and more difficult tasks. Right. So for example, initially, our first work in program synthesis, synthesis was to translate natural language description into really simple programs called if TTT, if this, then that. Mm -hmm. So given a trigger condition, what is the action you should take? So that program is a super simple. You just identify the trigger conditions and the action. Yep. And then later on with SQL queries, it gets more complex. And then also we started to synthesize programs with uh, loops and- uh, Oh no. You know? <laughs> and if you can synthesize recursion, it's all over. <laughs> Right, that, actually, yeah, one of our works actually is on learning recursive oh, neural no. programs. Oh, but no. anyway, anyway, so this <laughs> one is complexity, and the other one is um, generalization. Like when we uh, train our learn uh, a program synthesizer in this case, a neural programs to synthesize programs, then you wanted to generalize. For so any for a large number of inputs. Right, that, so that to be able to right generalize to previously unseen inputs. Got it. And so right, so some of the work we did earlier, um, learning um, uh, recursive neural programs actually showed that uh, uh, recursion actually is important uh, to learn. And uh, if you have recursion, then for a certain uh, set of tasks, we can actually show that you can actually have perfect generalization. Um, so right, so that won the best paper awards at uh, iClear earlier. Uh, so that's one example uh, of we want to learn 
these neural programs that can generalize better. But that works for certain tasks, certain domains, and there's question how we can um, essentially develop uh, more techniques that can um, have generalization for a wider set of uh, domains and, and so on. So that's another area. And then, and then the the third challenge I think will it's not just for programming synthesis; it's also cutting across uh, other fields in uh, machine learning and also including like deep reinforcement learning in particular. Is that uh, um, uh, this adaptation is that we want to be able to learn uh, from the past and tasks and training and so on to be able to solve new tasks. So for example, in program synthesis today, we still are working in the setting where given a particular task, we train uh, the, right, the model and to solve this particular task. Um, but that's not how humans work. Like the whole point is we train a human and you can then program to solve new tasks. Right, exactly. And just like in deep reinforcement learning, we don't want to just train an agent to play a particular game. Uh, either it's Atari or it's Go or, or whatever. Uh, we want to train these agents that can um, essentially extract knowledge from the past learning experience to be able to adapt to new, new tasks and solve new tasks. And I think this is particularly important for program synthesis. Yeah, that's the whole point. That's the whole dream of program synthesis is you're learning a tool that can solve new problems. Right, exactly. And I think that's a particular domain that as a community, we need to put more emphasis on. And I hope that we can make more progress there as well. Awesome. <laughs> There's a lot more to talk about, but let me ask that uh, you also had a very interesting and we talked about rich representations. You had a rich life journey. Uh, you did your bachelor's in China and your master's and PhD in the United States, CMU in Berkeley. Are there interesting differences? I told you I'm Russian. I think there's a lot of interesting difference between Russia and the United States. Are there in your eyes um, interesting differences between the two cultures from the silly romantic notion of the spirit of the people to the more practical notion of how research is conducted uh, that you find interesting or useful in your own work of having experienced both? Um, that's a good question. I think, so uh, I I studied in China for my undergraduate and that was more than 20 years ago. <laughs> so it's been a long time. Um, is there echoes so things, of that time in you? Things have changed a lot. Yes. I Actually, it's interesting. I think even more so, maybe something that's even maybe more different from my experience uh, than a lot of computer science um, researchers and practitioners is that, so for my undergrad, I actually studied physics. Nice, very nice. And then I switched to computer science in graduate school. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Was there, was there, uh, is there another possible universe where you could have become a theoretical physicist at Caltech or something like that? Uh, that's very possible. Some of my um, undergrad classmates, then they later on studied physics, got their PhD in physics from these schools from, yeah, from top 
<laughs> physics programs. So, so you 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 switch to. I mean, in that, from that experience of doing physics in your bachelor's, how what what made you decide to switch to computer science? And computer science at arguably the best university, one of the best universities in the world for computer science, with Carnegie Mellon, especially for the grad school and so on. So, what uh, second only to MIT? Just kidding. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw that in there. No, uh, what what was the choice like, and what was the move to the United States like? What was that whole transition? And if you remember, if there's still echoes of some of the spirit of the people of China in you in New York, right? Right. It's like yeah. three questions. In one. Yeah, I, I know. know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Um, so yes, so I guess okay. So first transition from. Physics to computer science. Yes. So when I first came to the United States, I was actually in the physics PhD program at Cornell. Yeah. I was there for one year, and then I switched to computer yeah. science, and then I was in the PhD program at Carnegie Mellon. Um. So, okay. So the reasons for switching. So one thing. So that's why I also mentioned that about this difference in backgrounds about having studied physics. Yes. First in my undergrad, um, I actually really. I really did enjoy my undergrad's uh, time and education in physics. I think that actually really helped me in my future work in computer science. Actually, even for machine learning, a lot of the machine learning stuff, the the core machine learning methods, many of them actually came from physics. Statistical. <laughs> 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 <Okay. laughs> For honest, mo most. But but anyway, <laughs> most of everything came from physics. <laughs> right. But anyway, so so when I studied physics, I was um, um, I think I was really attracted to physics. Um, it was it's really beautiful, and I actually call it uh, physics is the language of nature. Mm. And I actually clearly remember like one moment, uh, in my undergrads. Like I, I did my undergrad in Tsinghua, and I used to study in the library. And I clearly remember, like one day I was sitting in the library, and I, and I was like writing on my notes and so on. And I got so excited that I realized that really just from a few simple axioms, a few simple laws. I can derive so much. It's almost like I can derive the rest of the world. Yeah, the rest of the universe. Yes, yes. So that was like amazing. Do you think you have you ever seen, or do you think you can rediscover that kind of power and beauty in computer science in the world that so, you? <laughs> um, that's very interesting. So that gets to you know the transition from physics to computer yeah. science. Um, it's it's quite different for um, for physics in. In grad school, actually, things changed. So one is, I started to realize that when I started doing research in physics, at the time I was doing theoretical physics, and a lot of it, the you still have the beauty, but it's very different.、Mm. So I had to actually do a lot of the simulations. So essentially, I was actually writing, in some in some cases, writing fortune code. <laughs> <laughs> Good old fortune, yeah.、Um, to actually.、Um, Uh, right, do like do simulations and so on. That was not um, not exactly <laughs> not beautiful. <laughs> right, <laughs> I uh, I enjoyed doing, uh, and also at the time, 
uh, from talking with the senior, you know, students uh, in the program, I realized many of the students actually were going off to like Wall Street and and so on. Um, so, and I've always been interested in computer science, and actually, uh, essentially taught myself the C programming, like program, right, and, and so of on. Which th- when? In college. In college somewhere? In the, in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> For fun. Right. Physics okay. major, learning to do uh, C programming. Beautiful. Actually, it's interesting, you know, in physics, at the time, I think now the program probably has changed. But at the time, really the only class we had in, uh, in related to computer science education was introduction to, I forgot, to computer science or computing. And Fortran 77. There's a lot of people that still use Fortran. Um, I'm actually, if you're a programmer out there, uh, I'm looking for an expert to talk to about Fortran. They seem to, <laughs> there's not many, but there's still a lot of people that still use Fortran and still a lot of people that use Cobalt. So, By the way, so, um, so then, then I realized instead of just doing programming for doing simulations and so on, that I may as well just, change to computer science. And also one thing I really like, and that's a key difference between the two, is in computer science, it's so much easier to realize your ideas. If you have an idea, you write it up, uh, you, you code it up, and then you can see it actually, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> Running and you can, you can see it. You can bring it to life quickly. Bring it to life. Whereas yeah. in physics, if you have a good theory, you 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 have to wait for the experimentalist to do the experiments and to confirm the theory, and things just take so much longer. And and also the reason I in physics I decided to do theoretical physics was because I had my experience with experimental physics. <laughs> First, you have to fix the equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You that's... spend most of your time fixing the equipment first. Um, so super but, expensive equipment. So there's a lot of yeah. You have to collaborate with a lot of people. It takes a long time. Just yeah. takes really uh, right much longer. Yeah, it's messy. It's right. Messy. So I decided to switch to computer science. And one thing I think maybe people have realized is that for people who study physics, actually, it's very easy for physicists to change to do something else. Yes. I think physics provides a really good training. And. Um, yeah, so actually it was fairly easy to switch to computer science. Um, but one thing going back to your earlier question. So one thing I actually did realize, um, so there is a big difference between computer science and physics, where physics you can derive the the whole universe from just a few simple laws. And computer science, given that a lot of it is defined by humans, the systems are defined by humans and uh um, and it's uh, artificial, <laughs> like uh, uh, essentially you create a lot of these artifacts and so on. Um, it's it's not quite the same. You don't derive the computer systems with just a few simple laws. You actually have to see there's um, historical reasons why a system is built and designed one way versus the other. Um, there's, there's a lot more complexity, less elegant simplicity of E equals MC squared that kind of reduces everything down to those beautiful uh, fundamental equations. But what about the move from China to the United States? Is there anything that still stays in you that contributes to your work, the fact that you grew up in another culture? So yes, I think especially back then, it's very different from now. So you know, now they actually, 
I see these students coming from China and even undergrads. Actually, they speak fluent English. It was just you know like amazing, and they have already understood so much of the culture、uh, in the U.S. and so on. And、um, it was to you it was all foreign. It was. It was. It was, it was a very、new. different time at the time. Actually, even we didn't even have easy access to email. Right. Not to mention about the web. Yeah, I remember I had to go to you know specific, like you know, privileged server rooms to <laughs> to use email. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And hence, we at the time we had much less knowledge about the Western world, and actually at the time I didn't know actually the the in the U.S. the West Coast weather is much better than the East Coast. <laughs> 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 yeah, things like that. Actually,、uh, it's very, it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and but now it's so different. At the time, I would say there's also a bigger culture difference、um, because there's you know, so much less opportunity for shared information. So it's such a different right time and world. So let me ask maybe a sensitive question. I'm not sure, but I think you and I are in similar positions. As I've been here for.、Um, Already twenty years as well, and looking at Russia from my perspective, and you looking at China. In some ways, it's a very distant place because it's changed a lot. But in some ways, you still have echoes. You have, still have knowledge of that place. The question is, you know, China is doing a lot of incredible work in AI. Do you see? Please tell me there's an optimistic picture you see where the United States and China can collaborate and sort of grow together in the development of AI towards. You know, there's different values、uh, in terms of the role of government, and so on, of ethical, transparent, secure、uh, systems. We we th- we see it differently in the United States a little bit than China, but we're still trying to work it out. Do you see the two countries being able to successfully collaborate and work in a healthy way, without、uh, sort of fighting and、um, making it an AI arms race kind of、uh, situation? Yeah, I believe so.、Um, I think science has no border. And the advancement of the technology helps everyone, helps the whole world, and so I certainly hope that the two countries will collaborate. And、um, I certainly believe so. Do you have any reason to believe so, except being an optimist? So first, again, like I said, science has no borders, and especially uh, uh, in uh, science doesn't know bord- borders, right? And you believe that will. You know, in the in the former Soviet Union during the Cold War. So that's、uh, yeah. So that's the other point I was going to mention is that especially in academic research, everything is public. Like we write papers, we open source codes, and all this is in the public domain. It doesn't matter whether the person is in the U.S., in China, or some other parts of the world.、Um, they can go on archive and look at the latest、uh, research and results. So that openness gives you hope. Yes, me yes. too. And that's also how,、uh, as a world, we make progress the best. So, apologize for the romanticized question, but looking back, what would you say was the most transformative moment in your life that、um, maybe made you fall in love with computer science? So you said physics. You remember there was a moment where you thought you could derive the entirety of the universe. Uh, was there a moment that you really fell in love with 
the work you do now from security to machine learning to program synthesis? So maybe, as, as I mentioned, actually, in college, I, one summer I just taught myself programming C. Yes. And you just read a book. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you Don't tell me you fell in love with computer science by programming in C. Remember I mentioned one, one of the draws for me to computer science is how easy it is to realize your ideas. Yes. So once I you know, read the book, start, like, taught myself how to program in C, Immediately, what what did I do? Like I programmed two games. Um, one just simple, like it's a go game, like it's a board you can move the stones and so on. And the other one I actually programmed the game that's like a three D Tetris. It was a, it turned out to be a super hard game to play <laughs> <laughs> because instead of just the standard two D Tetris, it's actually yeah. a three D thing. Um, but like I realized, wow, you know, I just had these ideas to to try it out, and then. You can yeah, just do it. you can just do it. Wow. And so that's when I realized, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, you can create yourself. Yes, yes, ideas yeah, exactly. From, from nothing to something that's actually out in the real world. Right, so let me ask, your own hands. <laughs> let me ask a silly question, or maybe the ultimate question. What is to you the meaning of life? What What gives your life meaning, purpose, fulfillment, Happiness, joy. Okay, these are two different questions. Very different, yeah. It's interesting that you ask this question. Maybe this question is probably the question that has followed me and followed my life the most. Have you discovered anything, any satisfactory answer for yourself? Is there something? Is there something you've arrived at? You know, there's there's a moment. I've, I've talked to a few people who have faced, for example, a cancer diagnosis or faced their own mortality, and that seems to change their view of them. It it seems to be a catalyst for them removing most of the crap they've of seeing that most of what they've been doing is not that important, and really reducing it into saying like, here's actually the few things that really give me give meaning. Uh, mortality is a really powerful catalyst for that, it seems like. Facing mortality, whether it's your parents dying or somebody close to you dying or facing your own death for, for whatever reason or cancer and so on. Right. So, yeah. So, in my own case, I didn't need to face mortality too. <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 <laughs> to try to, you know, to ask that question. Yes. Um, And I think there are a couple things. So, one is... Like, who should be defining the meaning of your life, right? Is there some kind of even greater things than you who should define the meaning of your life? So, for example, when people say that searching the meaning of your life, is is there some, is there some outside voice or is there something, um, you know, outside of you who actually tells you, you know, so people talk about, oh, you know, this is, what um, you have been born to do, right? Right, like this is your destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, so who, right? So that's one question. Like, who gets to define the meaning of your life? Should should you be finding some other thing, some other factor to define this for you, or is something actually? It's just entirely what you define yourself, and it can be very arbitrary. Yeah. 
So in the, it, so inner, an inner voice or an outer voice, whether it's, it could be spiritual, religious too, with God or some other components of the environment outside of you or just your own voice. Do you have, a, do you have an answer there? So, okay, so for that, I have an answer. Yeah. Um, through, you know, the long period of time of thinking and searching, even searching through outside, uh, right, you know, voices or factors <laughs> outside of me. Yeah. So that I have an answer. I've come to the conclusion and realization that it's you yourself that defines the meaning of life. Yeah, that's a big burden though, isn't it? Yes and no, right? So yeah. then you have the freedom to define it. Yes. yes. And, and another question is like, what does it really mean by the meaning of life? Right. Um, and also whether the question even makes sense. Absolutely. And you said it somehow distinct from happiness. So meaning is something much deeper than just any kind of emotional, any, any, any kind of contentment or joy or whatever. It might be much deeper. And then you have to ask, what is deeper than that? What is, what is there at all? And then the, you, the question starts being silly. Right, and also you can say it's deeper, but you can also say it's a shallower, depending on how people want to define the meaning of their life. So for example, most people don't even think about this question, then the meaning of life to them doesn't really matter that much. And also whether knowing the meaning of life, uh, whether it actually helps your life to be better or whether it helps your life to be happier, um, these actually are open questions. It's not. <laughs> right. Of course, most questions are open. <laughs> I, I tend to think that just a asking the question, as you mentioned, as you've done for a long time, is the only, that there is no answer. And asking the question is a really good exercise. I mean, I have this, for me personally, I've had a kind of feeling that uh, creation is, um, like for me, has been very fulfilling. And it seems like my meaning has been to create. And I'm not sure what that is. Like I um, I don't have, I'm single, I don't have kids. I'd, I'd love to have kids, but I also, sounds creepy, but, I also see sort of, you said C programs. I see programs as little creations. I see robots as little creations. Uh, I, I, th I think it's, those are, those, those bring, and then ideas, theorems and, and our creations. <laughs> and those somehow intrinsically, like you said, uh, bring me joy. And I think they do to a lot of, at least scientists, but I think they do to a lot of people. <laughs> so that, to me, if I had to force the answer to that, I would say, creating new things yeah, yourself. For you. For me, That's for me, right, right. for me. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know, but like you said, it, it keeps changing. Is there some answer that- And some people, they can, I think uh, they may say it's experience, right? So like their meaning of life, uh, they just want it, to experience to the richest and fullest they can. Yeah. And a lot of people do take that path. Yes, seeing life as actually a collection of moments and then trying to make the richest possible sets, fill those moments with the richest possible experiences, yeah. Right, and for me, I think certainly, we do share a lot of similarity here. Like, so creation is also really important for me, even from, you know, the things that I've already talked about. Um, even like, you know, writing papers, and these are all creations as well. Um, and I have not quite thought whether that is really the meaning of my life. Like in a sense, also then maybe like, 
what kind of things should you create? There are so many different <laughs> things that you could create. Um, and also you can say another view is maybe growth is, is related but different from experience. Growth is also maybe type of meaning of life. Yes. It's just you try to grow every day, try to be a better self every day. And uh, and also ultimately we are here, it's part of the overall evolution. The right. The yeah. the world is evolving. And it's and funny it's isn't it growing. funny that the growth seems to be the more important thing than the thing you're growing towards. It's like it's not the goal, it's the it's the journey to it. Sort of it's almost it's almost when you submit a, a paper. <laughs> it's there's a sort of depressing element to it, not to submit a paper, but when that whole project is over. I mean, there's a, there's a gratitude, there's a celebration, and so on. But uh, you're usually immediately looking for the next thing, yeah, or the next step, right? It's not it's not that satis the end of it is not the satisfaction. It's the the hardship, the challenge you have to overcome, the growth through the process. It's some it's somehow probably deeply within us. The same thing that drove the drives the evolutionary process is somehow within us with everything the way, the way the way we see the world. Since you're thinking about these, so you're still in search of an answer. I mean, yes and no. In the sense that uh, I think for people who really dedicate time to search for the answer, to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? It does not necessarily bring you happiness. <laughs> yeah. It's a question, um, we can say, right, like whether it's a well-defined question, and and on the uh, and but on the other hand, given that you get to answer it yourself, you can define it yourself. <laughs> then sure, <laughs> that I can just uh, you know give it uh, an answer, and in that sense, yes, it can help. Um, like as, like we discussed, right? If you say, oh, then my meaning of life is to create or to grow, then. Then yes, then I think they can help. But how do you know that that is really the meaning of life or the meaning of your life? It's like there's no way for you to really answer the question. For sure, but something about that certainty is liberating. Uh, sort of, it might be an illusion. You don't, you might not really know. You might be just convincing yourself false, falsely. But being sure that that's the meaning, the there's something. There's something liberating in that. In that, there's something freeing in knowing this is your purpose, so you can fully give yourself to that. Without, you know, for a long time, you know, I I thought like, isn't it all relative? Like, why? <laughs> uh, what's? How do we even know what's good and what's evil? Like, isn't everything just relative? Like, how do we know? You know, uh, the the question of meaning is ultimately the question of why do anything. Why is anything good or bad? Why is anything right, valuable right. and so on? Exactly. But the moment, then you start to, I think just like you said, I, th I think it's a really useful question to ask, but if you ask it for too long and too aggressively. It may not be so productive. It may not be productive and not just for traditionally societally defined success, but also for happiness. It seems like asking the question about the meaning of life is like a trap. <laughs> it's uh, we're destined to be asking. We're destined to look up to the stars and ask these big why questions we'll never be able to answer, but we shouldn't get lost in them. I think that's probably the 
That's at least the lesson I picked up so far on right. that on that topic. Oh, let me just add one more thing. So it's interesting. Um, so actually, so sometimes yes, it can help you um, to focus. So when I when I shifted my focus more from security to AI and machine learning, at the time, the actually one of the main reasons that I sh I did that was because at the time I thoughts, my meaning, the meaning of my life and the purpose of my life is to build intelligent machines. And that's, and then your inner voice said that this is the right, this is the right journey to take to build intelligent machines and that you actually fully realized, you took a, a really legitimate big step to become one of the world-class researchers to actually make it, to actually go down that journey. Yeah. That's profound. That's profound. I don't think there's a better way <laughs> to end a conversation than talking for uh, for a while about the meaning of life. Don, it's a huge honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for talking today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Don Song. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Cash App. Please consider supporting the podcast by downloading Cash App and using code LEXPODCAST. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now let me leave you with some words about hacking from the great Steve Wozniak. A lot of hacking is playing with other people, you know, getting them to do strange things. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.